my next guest is uh, praised by a former Secretary of Defense and former CIA Director, uh, Robert M. Gates, and he's a radio guy. He's a, a program director, marketer, author. He is Jim Rafferty, and Jim, thanks for joining me. Alex, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. So you talk about accidental leadership. That's the name of your book. And um, tell us where it started. I mean, it sounds like the Boy Scouts was the start for you of becoming a leader by accident. So tell us why. And, of course, they're in such a, a, a rut right now, if you will. I feel like you're being a voice that the Boy Scouts are still a good thing for America. So let's start there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Leader by Accident starts uh, really with a, a, a tragedy where the, the scoutmaster of our son's troop and his family were all murdered by their own 15-year-old son. Uh, it was 14 years ago, and honestly, still hard to say those words. It was just something I hope, you know, uh, I hope never happens to anyone you know. Um, anyway, a, a couple of days after that, I wound up as the new scoutmaster of our troop, uh, which, you know, probably doesn't sound like the biggest deal in the world, but, but it's a pretty demanding volunteer job in the in the best of times, and this obviously was not the best of times. And at this moment, they turned to a guy who, me, who had been a Boy Scout for all of about, I don't know, a week or two as a kid. I really didn't like it. Uh, I didn't have any kind of position in the troop to that point. And I really had no, you know, outdoor skills in terms of being a, a camper or a hiker or any of the things you'd, you'd typically want out of your scoutmaster. So Leader by Accident, my book, sort of begins with that whole scenario of stepping into this volunteer role and just what an amazing experience it turned out to be over the next five years. And then really beyond that, it's about how those experiences then fueled a journey into entrepreneurship uh, a few years later where I you know, became a marketing consultant and hung out my own shingle, and, and that's just been an amazing and, and life-changing thing. Well, I mean, entrepreneurial spirit, I feel like, has been diminished by this pandemic and even by policies that, to say we care about the bigger business more than the small business lockdowns. I don't know if you if you want to weigh into that, but lockdowns, especially saying the small business can't do this that, and the other, but yet the corporations are able to do it. But Boy Scouts, I mean, I feel like when you are in there, you start to become a as a kid, you start to learn how to do things on your own. And let's you know, the rolling up your sleeves in this generation is disappearing, isn't it? Like I feel like that that Boy Scout mentality that let's go and do it, is dwindling because of the technology we have, Jim. 100%, yes. And certainly the you know the Boy Scouts of America have had their share of, of issues and bad press, and a good deal of that is on merit. I mean, there there were some systemic problems there. But those, as far as I can tell, have, have been corrected. They've done a lot to turn that around. And I just, you know, I know that being a scout was a really good thing for our son, and I just feel like, as you, as you note, our our young people today spend so much time on electronic devices. So, you know, beyond just the sort of getting off the screen and getting out and, and doing things and seeing the outdoors and being physically active, you've got all the components of, of leadership, show, leadership skills and citizenship and all those kinds of things that, that play into it as well. And I mean, the, the, the world needs what scouting teaches, you know, and, especially in this day and age, I feel like, you know, there are so many voices and so many negative things that our kids have access to electronically that we need all the positive voices in their ears as they go through those teenage years, you know, as many as possible. And and, and scouting is that positive voice. 
do you find it uh, ironic, if you will, and I don't know if you want to weigh in this, but do you find it ironic that, you know, a, a institution that does want to have accountability for young, you know, teach accountability is now finally being held accountable in the sense of um, like they're finally getting around to acknowledging this. You may, do you feel like they did that well enough back then? And are they doing a better job now of acknowledging that? Yeah, they have their issues, but they're getting, they're resolving them. Yes. Yes. They, they are doing a better job. No doubt. I think really even before this latest round over the last few years of, of lawsuits and all that, a, a lot of measures had been put in place that were not there before. And and to your other point, yes, they, they do deserve, you know, their their share of blame for the way things meant, went because I think, you know, back in the day, a lot of things were swept under the rug in part because that's what we did as a society, right? You know, you didn't, you didn't talk about such things. Um, but, well, you know, right or wrong, not, there's no right about it, but you know that's that's what was ha- what happened. I think it took too long probably to address these things head on, and I, I think they have done that and deserve credit for doing it, but maybe a little belatedly. I gotta be honest, you open pretty open. You're right, right, pretty openly about it. So, are you still affiliated with the Boy Scouts? Have you moved on? Do they know that you're not calling them out? But you're both calling them out and praising them at the same time. Did, did you have any leadership contact you about this book? I have not. Um... That's a really good point. So the the short answer is no. I'm I'm not involved, but it has nothing to do with what's in the book. Um, I stayed on as scoutmaster for about another year after our son reached Eagle Scout, and just to sort of make sure there was a smooth transition and the right people were in the right seats, you know, going forward, and the troop was in good hands. The feedback on the book I've had really has been pretty universally positive, including the feedback I've had from the scouting community. There's one section of it where I'm a little specifically critical of some folks for just the way they handled a certain situation where I think an apology would have gone a long way. And um, frankly, a couple of them, I think, were not happy that I mentioned it. But I think it was not negative. It was very specifically critical in a, in a certain way, you know, and, and I, you know, I think it was fair. Uh, you know, certainly they're hardworking people, and they they put in many many hours and decades of volunteer time. You know, that's what makes the scouting program go as a whole. So, you know, I in no way mean to be critical of scouting as a whole, or you know, the people at the regional or district level here. Jim, I feel like you wrote this because you also wanted to sort of express the trauma of having the community shaken like that. Do you, do you want to weigh into that for a minute? Absolutely, um, and and. When, when I talk about this in person, you know, in a, a, a keynote speech situation, really one of the very first things I say is this, and that is that the Browning tragedy, as, as those events came to be known, um, resonated deep and wide throughout our community. I mean, the, John, John and Tammy Browning were everywhere as volunteers. They were wonderful people. And in the context and the scope of all that happened with that tragedy, you know, my little slice of it really is hardly worth talking about. But what happened from there forward really changed things for me in in some some significant ways. And that that's the reason there's a book. It's not any kind of a tell-all about the, the tragedy or even about the Boy Scouts or anything like that. It's generally a very positive book. Well, I'll be honest, I also thought you were part of the Secretary defense, the Defense Department because they mentioned, oh, he got this praise. And I'm like, oh, was he in defense I mean, did you ever take your skills and leadership into the military um, with this experience? 
I did not, and that was one of the nicest things that's ever happened to me was Secretary Gates, uh, you know, offering that bit of feedback. Someone, uh, so someone I know knows him and reached out and asked if he would, you know, take a look at this book, and I thought he might glance at it or whatever. And I came down one Monday morning to an email that just went on and on from him, and he clearly read the book from cover to cover and just was was very very kind about it, and it just really was was so uh, gracious of him. I I couldn't be more grateful. And now you take your message uh, through Newman Communications. And i got to talk about the radio portion because I do work in radio. So tell me, what what's your role in radio? You're a radio guy. you got the voice for it as well. Ah, thank you. Uh, really uh, not involved in radio specifically anymore, although I was for a long time. I was a full-time announcer and program director for probably a dozen years and then a part-time announcer here in Baltimore for – probably close to another 20 years. I mean, sort of two separate chunks of maybe not quite 10 years each. But, um, you know, I, I, I always loved radio. I'm also glad, I guess, that I, I don't try to make a living that way anymore. But I do still do some voiceover work. And, uh, and you know, as we speak, I'm two-thirds of the way through the audiobook version of Leader by Accident, which if you've ever done that, you know that's a grind. It takes a while, but we're we're getting there. I'm glad. So I've been talking about the audiobook because I started to uh, read up. I had an audiobook a couple months ago. I signed up for it. I'm like, wow, imagine because I'm editing and engineering. I'm wondering how many hours it takes just for you guys to do that line by line. And they have to retake lines, right? So it's got to take hours on end each day. Yeah, it does. I, I do it as I have time, which is one of the reasons that it's not done yet, because, uh, you know, more or less, to, I am, well, I am doing it myself, and, you know, I have a home studio set up and all that, but the editing takes a while. Yeah, I mean, for I can't speak for anybody else. For me, each 10 minutes of audio probably is close to an hour's worth of work, so it does take a while. And uh, and congrats on getting the audio book uh, started, and, and, and I guess it's self-published. Is that how that's going to happen? It, it is, yeah. Um, yeah. Morgan James Publishing published the book. Uh, I hold the rights to the audio book, which really is just paperwork. But yeah, it'll, it will be on auto on sorry on Audible very soon if I don't have any more incidents like I did last evening where I lost about an hour's worth of work. Uh, wow. So, yeah. Thank- the uh, the audio software glitched out, and all of a sudden I just had all this noise instead of my voice, and it was uh, it was not a happy but, moment. But I'm glad you talked about that because. When you have a slip up like that, and you're in a leadership role too, I mean, you're leading, you're a leader in this book and, and getting it out there. But in general, when you have those kind of slip ups, what would you say to a keynote speech? Like, yeah, I lost an hour of work, but hey, here's how my experience helped me get through that. If you want to lean into that for a minute. Yeah, you know, I think leadership experience teaches you to sort of take a breath, and and to maybe accept like, okay. This is bad, but it happened, and my freaking out about it is not going to make it unhappen. It's just, you know, it is what it is, and the sooner we can remain calm and move past that, the better off we're going to be. And I think that really the two keys to, you know, my my leadership of the scout troop in the wake of the Browning tragedy were, A, you know, trying to stay calm. It was an extremely emotional time, as you can imagine, and also 
you know, not being afraid to admit that I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, I didn't keep any secret from the boys about my lack of scouting experience or anything. We had other people to handle those parts of the program who who stepped up and took on those responsibilities so that I could sort of, you know, be the leader and, and learn the scout skills as I went. But, you know, I didn't try to hide what I didn't know from anybody, and I think that's a pretty key leadership skill too. And you held yourself accountable. Isn't that a huge part of leadership? It absolutely is, yes. Yes, and, so, and that's something well, that if all goes well, you learn as a teenager too. You know, you you stop pointing fingers when things go wrong, and and you you step up and and say, you know, okay, yeah, this is on me. Jim, I I feel like though this generation is becoming an entitled one. They feel like they they just deserve everything, and and yet the trade school, I would even say the Boy Scouts. I mean, there's a lot of entities out there that say no roll your sleeves up and work. So what do you have to say about the entitlement that we seemingly seem to see uh, daily, uh, whether it be on, online and, and maybe in our newspapers also? Yeah, I, I think, you know, entitlement maybe is part of it. I, there is some of that. I think there are people who have it. I, I think more than that, maybe it's this sense of um, – I say in the book somewhere that, you know, the more connected we get digitally, the less connected we seem as human beings to each other. And, you know, I think the fact that we can, you know, you or I could go on Netflix right now and watch two completely different things, right, or go over to Spotify and and listen to any song we want, literally, or go to, you know, Amazon and get any book we want digitally in the snap of a finger, right? That's great, but it's not teaching us to be patient and to work for the things that are important. You know, we're we're used to all this instant gratification, and I don't know that that's entitlement. I think you know it's it's a great thing on the surface of it, but we're we're losing something in the process. And I think what we're losing is that that sense of stick to itiveness and the work ethic that that makes us successful professionally, that makes us successful in our in our relationships, you know, and that kind of thing. And I believe that's one of the chapters in your book, Connecting. So uh, as I look at the book here, i got to ask you, what was the best damn day of your life? You wrote about it, so tell me about it. That That is a story about my neighbor who passed on. That was something I wrote when he passed. And that was his stop line. If you were a stranger and you passed him on the street and just said, hey, how you doing? He would say, best damn day of my life. Thank you for asking. And once in a while, somebody would say, well, why is that? And he said, well, because you cared enough to ask me how I'm doing. you know." And he was the ultimate example in the good direction of what I'm talking about here, this disconnectedness, because he was a natural connector and a guy who knew how to reach out and make you feel important. And, you know, I, I say, I think in the book that, you know, he, he lit up a room, but he made sure you knew you were the most important person in the room. And that's that's a rare set of gifts, but the, yeah, that's that's the meaning behind the name of that chapter. Very interesting. So, but personally, have you ever had a damn good day that you just would talk about and remember forever? That maybe gets you out of that mode of of feeling that Browning instant, or Browning tragedy over and over. Like, is there a positive that you think of too to get you through all of this? Absolutely. Every, every day, and and I don't mean that, you know, every day is not the best day of my life or, or the best day of your life. I, I don't mean that. But what I do mean is that one of my con- things that I consistently preach to the scouts and that is a big part of the book and of my messaging to people in general is that 
it takes a little work to cultivate this sense of gratitude and to look for the good things every day. And sure, we've all had great days. You know, the, the birth of the child, the day I got married, the, the day the book was published was a, a very exciting day for me. Um, but good things happen every day. But we tend to focus on the things that annoy us and the things that go wrong. And it takes a little more effort to notice the things that are good. And it puts us, it puts our our minds in such a better place when we do that, you know, and, and we can frame things positively. That I, I make an effort. It, I the thing I do every night, the last thing I do before I close my eyes is think of three things that happened that day that I am grateful for. And some days it's a challenge to come up with three things. And some really good days it's a challenge to decide which three things. And that's a really useful exercise in what's you know, really important to us. So I, you know, some people do gratitude journaling. I think that's great. There's a number of ways to go about it, but I would encourage anyone anywhere at any time to really work because it does take a little effort in, in cultivating that sense of gratitude. It, it, it just truly makes a difference. Talking with uh, Jim Rafferty, he's the author of Leader by Accident. And uh, Jim, when you see leadership, uh, come under fire. I mean, I do news, I do sports, and there's leadership everywhere, it feels like. Um, do you just want to reach out to those kind of leaders under fire, like a president, like a head coach, and say, hey, here's something that you should read because I've been through it, and yet I was able to lead under pressure. I, do you ever feel that, like watching a football game or even listening to a speech by a leader? Like, like tell me what you would tell the leaders of today, like a president or even a head coach. Yeah, we, we love to be critical of them, don't we? <laughs> we? We love to criticize what turned out to be the wrong move when the coach makes it. And, you know, of course, our, our presidents get torn apart regardless of, of who they are from whichever party. And, you know, that that's just our toxic environment that we that we live in these days it is and and yeah you know i i think for anybody in that situation and there are plenty of people in situations like that who don't make the news you know just just being the boss opens you up to a whole world of that stuff and i yeah i would say yes there there's some useful things in this book for you and i would tell you I, i'd sort of go in the other direction too that probably the most consistent feedback i've had from people who have read the book is well, you know, this is really what I needed to hear right now. Um, you know, we've all been told before to get out of our comfort zone, right? That's a theme of the book because that's what I did when I became a scoutmaster and then again when I became an entrepreneur. So that's that's not news that we should get out of our comfort zone, but we need to be reminded of stuff once in a while. And that that's the thing I've heard the most from people was, yeah, thank you that this this at this moment in my life, this is really what I needed to read. In your in your business, do you do you have employees? Do you actually lead people as we speak right now, or are you self-employed? Like uh, your your leadership is obviously at home, but it's also at work. I, I know you're you're busy on both fronts. Sure, I am a I am a solo entrepreneur. I do have some partners I work with who you know are outsourced sort of folks who I work with all the time. So in that sense, I lead that team. The other thing I do business-wise, uh, actually just this morning, is uh, conduct a m monthly business roundtable group for about 10 people in any given month. Uh, so certainly there's some leadership in that. And yes, again, that's the the point I make in the book is, you know, whether you're being a leader doesn't mean being the boss. You know, you know no matter who you are, somebody is looking to you for leadership at some point. 
at home, you know, your spouse or significant other, your kids certainly, perhaps an aging parent, your coworkers at times, even if you're you're not their boss, they're not your boss, at times people are looking to you for leadership and guidance and, and don't shy away from that. All right. I feel like I'm ignoring the, the eight pound eight oven in the room, if you will, which is the pandemic. Have you had right. people come to you and say, hey, Jim, you know, my company is in a bit of trouble during this pandemic or my employees don't want to go back to work or, you know, these certain things that pop up. Have people been relying on you for your leadership advice during the pandemic? Yes. It's interesting. The, the arc of the pandemic has been really uh, very interesting where, you know, like all my clients in, the, in my marketing consultancy came through it just fine. But at the beginning, there was this whole, like, it was really, really busy. Like, we're open, we're closed, we're we're, we don't know we're open to these people, but not these people, and we're, and we're all trying to figure it out, right? You know, adapting <laughs> to to use the name of your right your your podcast is true. everybody yes, had to adapt, right? And so yes, there was that. And now what I get it's really interesting because Leader by Accident, my book, was pretty well complete at the time that we were locked down. And I just set it aside for a few months because I thought, well, I don't know how things are going to change here. Will this still be relevant or whatever? And then eventually I just moved ahead, and I really didn't make many changes, if if any at all. And the messaging, if anything, I think is more relevant because of all the adapting we've had to do, because of the great resignation, because of trying to lead teams remotely and all all these leadership things are suddenly under the magnifying glass because we've got to find new ways to motivate our teams and to, to make them feel valued and welcome and to understand that, you know, maybe they were trying to homeschool their kids while they're still trying to get their work done and all. And we've, we've all had to find different ways to do things. And in the really just unintentionally, I think the book has resonated a lot in that way. Well, I'm sure it will continue to because now we're getting out of the pandemic and there's there's that kind of leadership too. Um, your your message, though, is obviously about getting out of the comfort zone and adapting. And for those who don't find that easy, in the leadership role to adapt, I mean, your heart must go out to them because sometimes it can get very overwhelming for a leader to just be able to do that. It can. It can. And... You know, I would say, you know, sometimes as, as I was, we're sort of, I mean, I didn't have to accept the Scoutmaster job, but it was the right thing to do. So in that sense, I sort of felt you know, a little forced out of my comfort zone where I wasn't stepping up and waving my hand and saying, hey, I want to do this, you know. Um, and people are in situations like that. And I think that's happened a lot through the pandemic, too, where we find ourselves in roles that we weren't in before it started. And, you know, again, I think be calm. Don't be afraid to admit what you don't know. Don't be afraid to tell the people around you that you're going to be learning from them as you go. You know, th- those are hallmarks of a leader in any circumstance, and especially in these circumstances. But the, the getting out of your comfort zone part is so important because otherwise, you know, we just we, we stay where we are. And th- there's a quote in the book about the, the preacher who says, you know, God loves you just the way you are, and he also loves you too much to let you stay that way. I got to say, for those who, and Faith, I know, did bring you guys through that tragedy big time. Um, Talk about that for a minute. I don't think I asked you that yet. How did Faith bring you guys through that tragedy? Because I'm curious. 
Yeah, that's a really good question and, and a deep one. And I mean, certainly, you know, faith, uh, reverence is the word the Boy Scouts use. That That is a part of the program is that, you know, respecting that there is a higher power and, you know, my higher power may not look the same as yours and we respect all creeds and religions and all and, and that's fine. But I think, you know, we, we need faith in something besides us. I mean, that's my belief. There There's something larger than us at work out here. And that just makes it easier for me to, to get through my days and to say, you know what, yeah, I, I can do this. I, I can do this Scoutmaster thing. I, I can be an entrepreneur and be successful at it. And, you know, I can write a book, which I wasn't sure about, and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, the question, you know, whatever that thing is that you're star- staring down that's, you know, keeping you from moving ahead, you, you need to step out and do it. And, you know, maybe it won't go exactly as you thought, but I guarantee you'll learn something for from it, and then you'll do better the next time. Could, could your troop have folded after this tragedy? Was there that possibility if you didn't fold it, uh, if you didn't step in? We were not sure. I, I would separate it from whether I stepped in or, or someone else stepped in. Uh, we were not sure, truly, whether the troop would survive. You had a group of about 25 young men at the time uh, suddenly reduced by three, plus their beloved scoutmaster, and we did not know whether the remaining parents would just, you know, not want their young men around those memories all the time. And, you know, I mean, who could blame them? So there was a a good deal of doubt as to whether the troop would survive, which makes it probably even more surprising that they turned to the guy with zero experience. But what were you doing before that, Jim? What what, what was your job before becoming scoutmaster? Oh, well, within the troop, I didn't have a position, and if I'm being honest, I didn't want one. I, you know, our son was in the troop. I would go along and help out on a camping trip when I could, but I didn't really have any, you know, particular position or anything. And, you know, I like everybody else, I have I have a job, I'm raising kids, and I felt like I was busy enough. And, and when the tragedy happened, I figured I could find a way to make it work if that's really what the, the troop wanted, and it was, so. Did, did you find it tough to trying to get your kids through that first. I feel like that was your priority. Then maybe focus on other parents' kids in the troop. I feel like you had to really zone in on your own kids first to be able to expand and help the other kids in the troop. The day the news of the tragedy broke, um, I suggested to our son, who was 12 at the time, uh, that we just go out and take a walk. It was a pretty nice day. for. It was about this time of year, uh, February, and it was a pretty nice day. And we went out for a walk, and I... I remember specifically just saying to him, look, I have no idea what to tell you about this. But we walked and we talked about a bunch of stuff, not just that, and I you know, I think it helped. So, yes, yeah, certainly we started with, you know, the, on the home front with getting through the tragedy. And, you know, the, the other thing I would say is that as a troop, we did not hide from the tragedy. And I think that was also important to the first year and to the fact that the troop not only survived – but thrived is that we we sat down as a group and talked about it regularly. And as the the case wound its way through the courts, we would talk about those developments. We never made any effort to pretend it didn't happen. We addressed it very much head on, and we had a group of very dedicated and amazing, resilient young men who were there for each other, and, and we pulled through it as a group. Okay, in in, in two days here, uh, news wise, we had to remember. Um, Soman Douglas and the shooting in Parkland and then we had to also relive 
in a way, uh, Sandy Hook because they just had a settlement with Remington. But when these thing, when these news pieces and when these anniversaries come up, I feel like you could be a voice for parents that are grieving still, and that trauma is brought up every year. And in this case, Sandy Hook is very early because of the settlement. But when these stories and traumas come up again, what's your advice? I, you know, I ha- I haven't lived through that in, in terms of being a parent, and I would never presume to offer device, offer advice to someone who had, had been through that. I, it's just, you know, what we lived through was unimaginable enough. Losing one of my own kids, I just, you know, I. I, I don't know what I'd do, and probably you know the thing that would be the right for me would not be the thing that would be right for you. I think in terms of you know a group situation like this, that it was touched by a tragedy, that being open and upfront and discussing it regularly were the right things to do. But you know, other others may have other ways to deal with it, and I would never you know be critical of that. I I appreciate that. Yeah, I, it is a. Sm- in a sense, a smaller tragedy, Browning, but nonetheless, I feel like it had the impact of a whole community like these shootings have. That's basically why I asked. Yeah, it was smaller, and it also predated most of these in that, you know, we were a lot less numb to this kind of violence as a society then. It was, you know, it was 2008 when it happened. Um, and, you know, it's it's just becoming far too frequent. And, you know, I live in Baltimore where, you know, you know the murders every day. And, and we were just talking about this in their business group this morning. It, you know, it barely makes the news anymore. And that that's wrong. You know, I, I, I have no idea what the fix is, but we've arrived at this place where, you know, oh, boy, another school is shooting. Leadership, you know? Yeah, is leadership a fix, though? Is the election, are voting in better mayors or voting in better? you know, having them appoint different police chiefs? Like, is the leadership what needs to change or is it a societal thing that that maybe leaders just can't fully change because it's society? Boy, that's a that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? <laughs> that question. Um, you know, that's that's well beyond my expertise, to be honest. I mean, I think certainly leadership is a part of the answer. But there are, there are deep-rooted societal things that – you know, I, you know, happen to think kids should spend more time outside hiking and less time playing violent video games, you know, but is there a causal connection there? I, you know, I don't know. I've heard there are studies that say yes, and I've heard there are studies that say no. The one I saw is that uh, the screen time is directly proportional to unhappiness in our kids. You know, the, oh. the, the happiest kids really are the ones who spend the least amount of time in, in front of electronic devices. So, uh, you know, I, I think in general that's a, a good prescription, but boy, in terms of cure, curing society's ills, I, I don't, that's probably be probably beyond my pay grade. I think that's beyond everyone's pay grade, except possibly faith in God. I think that could change things. Up. Truth. Uh, okay, Jim. There, there are people. So I created adapting with Alex Care because people are adapting to tragedy, adapting to in their own lives. You know having to get into a par- into a wheelchair because they're paralyzed out of nowhere or losing a limb. So for those who may not have lost uh, or had a community shaken like that, but their own self shaken by news of having to, having been paralyzed or having to lose a limb, what are your, what are your leadership uh, skill advices to them who are just trying to adapt to something that they've never been dealt with before? Yeah. 
And and as we said, over the last two years, in ways large and small, we've had all of us, every single one, no exceptions, have had to learn about adapting, right? Um, from you know whether it's working at home, whether it's being in a hospital, whether it's losing a loved one very suddenly, uh, which has happened in in our circles certainly because of COVID, and you know those traumatic things. Again, I, I all I would say is you know get the right help. You know not only the physical help but the the counseling that you know you need when something traumatic like that happens. Um, you know again not my area of expertise, but I. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think I'll, I'll stop there. All right. I know you're in marketing. So one last question for you to make it a little more fun here. Okay. Uh, did you like the Super Bowl ads and have you ever made one in your marketing agency? No, I, do, I don't do national TV level stuff. I, my clients are mostly local and regional, but uh, yes, some of them I thought were great. Some of them every year, right? Some I thought were great. Some you think were misses, and and my hits and misses were probably different from other people's. Uh, I thought the Doctor Evil one for Chevrolet was pretty good, and the uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Colin Yost thing uh, was was good with Alexa. Um, what I found really interesting about the Super Bowl was how polarizing the uh, halftime show was from best ever to I hated that and no in between. And I guess I was in between actually, because, you know, musically it was not my cup of tea, but I thought it was pretty well produced and, you know, it moved along sure. pretty good and was entertaining. But, you know, I can't, I can't say any of that. I, I love most kinds of music. Hip hop isn't among them. And I, you know, that, that was not my, not my jam, so to speak. But, uh, but the, the reaction to that, like there was very little middle ground in the, in the reaction to that halftime show. All right, uh, it was uh, it was all over the place, but I, you know, the music I kind of grew up with it, so I felt sort of like you in the middle of it. I thought the game was great, and um, game was we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe Lamar gets there one day, right? We we can we could hope. hope. We could hope the Ravens. Uh, yeah, they put I don't forget what twenty some guys on the injured reserve this year, so it was a tough year here in Baltimore. Yeah, it was one of the stranger years because they've actually been in the playoffs most of the years since Lamar took over. So yes. we'll see what happens. All right, I'm going to ask you this another fun one before I, I let you go. What is your favorite commercial you produce locally? Like, I mean, what was – I know we're a little off track here, but I, I'm just on that track at the moment. Favorite commercial you have produced locally for television in, in Baltimore? Actually um... – that's that's really interesting. Uh, it's been a little bit since I've done a television commercial because everything is skewed so digital. Still do some radio ads. Um, probably the most fun part of that was getting to work um, a radio ad. One, one of the uh, announcers for the Orioles became a spokesperson for uh, one of my clients and actually came to my house to use my little recording rig to record record spots a couple of times. So that was kind of neat. That sounds good. And I know a couple of voices there. So. I'll- I'll maybe ask you off there who it was because I'm curious now. But uh, Jim Rafferty, thanks so much for joining. And and do come back as we get out of this pandemic. And as the audio book gets finished, let me know and we'll promote it. Thanks so much, Alex. I really appreciate it. I'm Alex Garrett. We were where we are, always adapting.